0: So this month, I am going to be elaborating on, I have five talks, and I'm going to be elaborating on the four foundations of mindfulness in those five talks. That's one and a quarter foundations per talk. <laughs> and. Uh, But I'm going to be doing it quite likely from a direction and a perspective that is relatively new to you. And the the reason I'm doing that is uh, I I gave uh, some 45 talks uh, on this subject in my home sangha in Seattle over a two-year period of time. And as I uh, started to acquaint myself with the actual direction that it was asking from us, my whole uh, understanding of what those foundations were and where they were pointing changed dramatically. And I hope to share with you in five more concise talks that same slight detour of direction that it certainly offered me and hopefully it will offer you as well. So one of the ways that I uh, integrate the Dharma these days is through the science that I'm keen on hearing and listening to, uh, because the science to me seems to be pointing to a deeper realization of reality than uh, many of us observe with our senses. And I think it's very compatible and aligned with Buddha Dharma. And so I'd like to start off tonight with just a scientific fact that I learned in a series of, of lectures on cosmology by a professor from the University of Virginia. And it has to do <clears throat> with the total weight of the universe. So if you add up, right? The universe is some hundred billion galaxies large. And within each galaxy is some hundred billion stars. And if you add up all of that weight, you get 10 to the 53rd kilograms. Now, don't ask me how they know that. But it has something to do with the fact that there is an average of five hydrogen atoms per cubic centimeter or cubic uh, feet of space, per cubic foot of space. There's an average in all of the universe, an average of five hydrogen atoms. Doesn't sound like very much, but there's a lot of space out there in which there isn't very much. And somehow, if you multiply that times the dimensions of what we know the universe to be, you come up with 10 to the 53rd kilograms of weight. Okay, but hold hold on. (laughs) What they say in addition to that is that you can't take that as the sum weight of the universe because there is a negative effect of gravity upon that weight. And so if you want the true weight of the universe you have to subtract the attraction or counterweight of the effect of gravity so when they uh, weigh in when they add up all of the gravitational effect it comes to minus 10 to the 53rd kilograms the cosmologist at that point stopped. And he said, this is one of the most amazing facts that you'll hear in science, is that the universe sums to zero. Now, he says, it's not just the entire universe that sums to zero, but each separate object also sums to zero because it has a weight and a counterweight because all objects also have a gravitational field, also sum to zero. And then he stops and says each object sums to zero. Now, if we look out with our eyes, we see the somethingness It's very obvious, but we don't see the nothingness. We don't see the other side of the equation. And I started wondering why it is that this species does not recognize the entire range of both the presence of objects and its zero summation at the same time. And it seems to me that in our evolutionary history, the weight of our survival came from seeing something, not from seeing nothing. In other words, we needed to recognize a lion very quickly and run in the opposite direction to get away from the lion. There wasn't any evolutionary reason to see the summation of nothing. There was an enormous reason to see it as something. And so over the generations, some million or so years of our evolution, in which we have developed, our minds have developed, around the seeing, the perception of something, And we are left now in the 21st century very deeply ingrained in the habits of seeing the world as something. And we're now reaching a point where it has diminishing returns. And that is having a species-wide effect, I think, on the, a questioning. Science is being driven in that direction and there is a cumulative effect of people wondering in themselves what the world really is, what life is really about. Perhaps it has yet to peak, I hope so, because a lot of the problems that we see sustained by us seeing the world as something would be resolved when we began to see it as equivalently nothing. So we have gathered here, we have gathered here to begin to look at both sides of that equation. It's not that we don't want to see the something, the form of the world. But awakening does not require that we stop seeing the forms of the world. Awakening requires that we see the nothing alongside the something. And this is where many of us have mistaken what a spiritual journey is all about. The reason we feel so lost in the world of something is that we keep knocking into other somethings. We keep being rubbed up against. And when you have seven billion people rubbing up against and grasping at, you have a lot of conflict, you have a lot of disorientation, you have a lot of self-centeredness that can't be sustained in an ever-diminishing surface. And spirituality is really to see why it is that we have invested psychically into seeing the world as something. And Buddhism does this in a number of ways, very skillfully. It shows you that the something that we have invested in, most obviously, is impermanent. It's not reliable. It doesn't last. It... So why invest our energy into something that is on its way out, is in a state of entropy and dispersion and chaos. And what is it what it is attempting to do within that is to for us to divest our energy from seeing the world just as something. When you only see the world for what the mind says it is, then alongside that equivalent, arising with that something we see is the someone who is seeing. Those two arise together. And because we have learned to only see something, we take ourselves as to be 7 billion individuals separate and isolated from one another. And that is because our perceptions have learned that orientation to the world of form. But is that the truth? If it's the truth, then let's just get on and be greedy, gather what we can, get more than our share, and that'll be that. But if it is not the truth, then we have to act we have to act conservatively against the perception of the something that keeps forming in front of our eyes. We have to question it. We have to take a stand against the perceptual way our mind has oriented life and relationship to us. Because that's an evolutionary way of looking, it may not be the truth. And now we're reaching a point in which science is paralleling and in alignment with that truth. And so Buddhism, through its 2,500 years of history, has been training the observer to divest his or her interest in form. Not so that you can be an isolated entity and just not care about form. That wouldn't solve the problem at all. You would just be a dispassionate, separate individual. But the fact in which we withdraw the energy from form also eliminates the person who is watching. Now, where does that energy go? This is where it gets interesting. In one of the laws of thermodynamics, I am not a scientist, so I don't claim, but I think it's the second law. It may be the first. (laughs) Energy in a closed system is never diminished. Whatever amount of energy you have in a closed system can be converted from one form of energy to another, but its totality is never diminished. It's summation. Okay. In the closed system of my observation with reality, I have invested my energy in making the form something. Making life into something. That's where the energy has gone. If that energy gets divested from making an object into the something I know it to be, because I'm doing it. You realize that, I hope. Where does that energy go? It goes to the formless. It goes to awareness. So as we have learned through our Buddhist training not to invest so much, not to expect so much from life by running after it and pursuing it, and we learn it in various forms and skillful means that Buddhism offers. Slowly, not through our manipulation or ambition, or even our effort, but the relaxation of the effort that infused itself into form, now naturally, intrinsically, reveals itself as awareness. nothing I do. If I do it, I'm investing back into form. If I take control of my journey, if I willfully withdraw my energy in detached form, I'm left miserable, really. I'm still here but I'm just miserable now because I have nowhere to put my place my hope my longing. And because an act of will can do just that, it can withdraw itself. As ascetic practices, the Buddha understood that that wasn't the way to do it. But this has to be done naturally. This has to be done through understanding. This has to be done not through our will, but through seeing. Seeing the value and seeing the limitation of all experience. And this is the key. The seeing, S-E-E-I-N-G, the seeing does it on its own. It does not require an exertion of our ambition. What it does require, is our intention to see, which is a very different form of energy than effort to see. If our intentions are to run after life and pursue it, then that's what we'll do. We'll use our intentions for the energy of remaining separate from and pursuing after those things that we're separate from. But at a certain level of sophistication and understanding, the world doesn't pay off like that. We've seen that it just doesn't work. We have experienced it as being meaningless as a pursued object. And there is a period of time in which there's a dispassionate implosion, really, where we're left feeling the hopelessness of no longer having the pursuit. This is an interim stage before that energy becomes reacquainted, reinvested within the formless. Formlessness is the sacred. But when we only know the world of form, we have to have symbols of what it means to be sacred, like the image behind me, like the crucifix. Because we don't have access to the formless, we make formed images of the sacred. But as the formlessness begins to reveal itself, all things are seen as sacred. This is the path of practice. It's important to know where we're going. There are so many detours. There's so many tunnels. And we come from a tradition in which people have been tunneling for 2,500 years. Let's clean the thing off and see where is this going. To ask crucial questions to regain our bearing. The Buddha framed it from suffering to the end of suffering. That continuum I have just stated when I talked about from form to formlessness we cause within the individuation of form, form forms us, remember, as well as the mind forming the world. There is always a sense of incompletion because we only have or are pursuing half the equation. We're only pursuing what the mind has said we need to pursue. And the mind, because it is ravenously hungry, never feels complete in whatever it pursues, because it's pursuing its own image of something. How can it feel complete by acquiring its own image? It had that even before it started chasing. So I know some of you expected an opening night talk. But we're moving quickly here because I want to get us on board. I want us all together here. I want us hungry and not tunneling. So he starts us off giving us the principles of dharma. Four noble truths are the principles of dharma. That's the principles of form and the way out of form investment. But there's an application to those principles. You can't just have the philosophy, you've got to have a way to ingest and realize that philosophy. Because this is a realized, a realized activity that we're doing. And so he also gives us the foundations, the four foundations. The four foundations, ah! Sometimes when you see something In the perfection, it's like this overwhelming sense of, that's where the bow comes from. The foundations are a systematic way of divesting from form and living within the formless. So let us just, we're going to go through each four, all four, in the course of this month. I want to introduce you to the first one tonight. He picks the most personalized form, the most possessed form we can have. It's an object like all other objects, but he takes the one that has the most charge to personalized charge, the body, and he invites us through that doorway. Because if we can learn its true nature, that means how we create it. Not just that it is, then he can start showing us how we are created in relationship to it, second foundation. And then move us to the emptiness of just seeing, third foundation. To finally living within discernment, fourth foundation, just seeing is third foundation discerning what we see from awareness, formlessness, seeing form, fourth foundation. But the first foundation is the passageway, the doorway, is the entryway we all have to cross. We would love to skirt the issue We would love to bypass this particular doorway because it holds so much personal scarring and emotional tearing, really. But through it we must go. There's no other way around it. And so, as he allows us to come into the body, encouraging us forth, he says something in the sutta. He says, enter the body without knowledge or recollection, without knowledge or recognition. See, he doesn't want us to carry the story and the certainty of what it is that we see into the body when we enter it. He wants us to go with a lamp and no map. What is this thing? Now, if you'll just focus in on your right hand for a moment, And just look at it, and it comes into complete form. Complete understandable knowledge, recognition, memory, all instantaneous with the appearance of hand. But if we close our eyes and simply enter the experience of that object we just saw, we no longer call it hand, We no longer hold it to the boundaries that we have lived with. We are now entering the mystery of the body. We are now entering some form, as solid as it appeared to be when I perceived it, as insubstantial as it is experienced when I live it. And then I open my eyes to it again and immediately it comes back into the form and recognition. That simple exercise can take us all the way. That simple willingness to pursue anything to its end For it leaves us speechless. And we see how necessary each object is to the story we say about it. And the world loses its definition, its delineation, when the story is silenced. Now, the fact is that we don't like the world silenced, and we have to recognize that fact up front. We slow ourselves down because we're afraid of what the world holds for us if we didn't keep forming it through our words. We're afraid of being disoriented. We're afraid of losing our particular reference, self-reference. And so we do this gradually within our own readiness. No one, should push you faster than your own willingness, than your own intention delights in going. There should be a delight in going, an interest in what you're seeing. That proves or equates to your readiness to see. If you're doing it because you think you should do it, because his talks are going that way, no. No. We have to govern ourselves. I can't be in each side of your head. I can't be in each one of your heads, thank goodness. But I can keep reminding us that the speed is individually determined. I loved the mystery from the beginning. It was exhilarating. And I thought everyone did. But not so. So what we do is that we stay with what we know. And we just move the boundaries a little. We just question it a little bit like we just did with our hand, what are the real boundaries? What is the real, where is the outline of the hand? Not perceptually, because the perceptual fixation is always towards form, solidity between form and space, the solidness of things. Remember, that's our evolutionary history. And formlessness, accessing formlessness, is through stillness, is through quiet. And there'll be a time in which your heart will crave quietude. As it now... Most probably craves noise. You may not even realize that you crave noise until you're confronted by quiet. And then you'll see why the mind is as noisy as it is. Is because we encourage the mind to be noisy so that we don't have to face quiet. And the noise keeps forming the world to be in accordance with the words that are invested within the noise. But just for this moment, if you feel comfortable, let us enter the quiet. Now you see, or you can sense perhaps, that the world is not as separately parceled out as it was when I was noisy. Quiet doesn't hold the differentiation. And there is a sense, mostly felt through the heart, of it coming together in a way that Betray the vision, the perceptual vision that I've held my whole life. And that becomes the override, the default knowledge in us. No longer does the perceptual reference become the default way we live in the world. For we know that there is something truer and we feel it. And we give ourselves over to that. And as we do, more and more formless awareness becomes available. And formless awareness does not separate form. It doesn't hold form to even be form. Everything gets quiet. Now when we enter the body, it gets very noisy before it gets very quiet, because there's a lot of scar tissue within the body that has to be dealt with. How? Because this is a key point, we meet form and all of its expressions, its emotional expressions, with formlessness. If you meet it with form, meaning yourself, you reassert the energy of form back into itself. And the two of you stay very separate, you and your emotion. If we meet whatever arises with quietude, said differently, Form can't sustain itself as a problem. And we know interconnection. We know the gateway is through oneness. The gateway of the unconditioned is through oneness. For perhaps even now, you can sense something. Enough for tonight. Thank you all for your attention. And Skye is going to lead us on the Reflections of the Sharing of Blessing, because I have no idea how it goes.